Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking today with Megan Asaka. Dr. Asaka is an assistant professor of history at the University of California at Riverside and is the author of the fantastic new book, Seattle from the Margins, Exclusion, Erasure, and the Making of a Pacific Coast City, which is just out. It came out earlier this year in 2022 from the University of Washington Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Megan. Good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't we begin, as we always do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about who you are as an author. What is your background? And in particular, what brought you to history? How did you get interested in history? Well, um, my specializations are Asian American history and urban history and public history. And how did I get uh, interested in history? Well, I think I've always been interested in history growing up. I was very aware of my own family history. I'm Japanese American and my family um, uh, has uh, roots in uh, Seattle going back over a hundred years. And so I was always very interested in family history. Um, And yet I didn't really understand that to be history. Um, And so I had these kinds of interests in Japanese American history and family history and trying to understand how my family story fit within the broader kind of narrative of the United States and of the Pacific Northwest and of Seattle. I would say it wasn't until I worked at Densho um, as an oral historian and an archivist that I actually started to see myself as a real historian. I also think, you know, for me growing up, I always associated history with memorizing facts and, you know, presidents and um, war and and stuff like that. And I didn't really see my interest as being, quote unquote, real history until I worked for Densho. And Densho is a community based uh, organization that's based in Seattle. Um, that is dedicated to preserving and sharing the stories of the wartime incarceration of Japanese Americans through a digital archive and other online platforms. And I worked there for many years after college. And so it was through that work, actually, that I began to really see myself as a historian and to kind of be empowered to pursue history um, in graduate school and as a profession. So that's kind of a little bit about, about me. And I'm curious, too, about your relationship to Seattle. What brought you to the topic of this book about Seattle, but even more specifically than that, about uh, um, the, the, the story of displaced and migrant workers in Seattle specifically? Yeah, well, so the story of, I think, specifically migrant workers came a little bit later on in the research process. But for me, you know, again, going back to what I was talking about earlier, um, So I'm from Seattle, and my family has really long roots in the city. And growing up, you know, I was very aware of the experiences that my family had, which, you know, as Japanese Americans, my family was removed from the city, incarcerated. And then when they came back after the war, really had to start over with nothing. 
um, and, you know, coming back to a city that really didn't want them back. Um, you know, that was my understanding of Seattle. And growing up, you know, I, I had that, you know, um, knowledge. And yet I was constantly being told that Seattle was somehow a progressive city. It was an exceptional city. Um, and that it somehow existed outside of the fraught racial history of other American cities. That was the kind of message that I got in, you know, books, um, you know, in news articles, in museum exhibits. And that disconnect was something that really drove a lot of my, and I realize now, even as early as college, a lot of my um, research projects that I did and papers that I would write was really trying to understand why that disconnect existed and then to try to kind of articulate a new sort of version of Seattle history that would make my family story make sense. Um, and so that's really what got me on this path of kind of wanting to write a new history of Seattle. It was rooted in a very kind of personal place and a place of trying to understand, um, you know, trying to actually write a history that I would have wanted to see when I was growing up um, and that kind of really centered uh, my family story and stories like it, I will say, so I didn't intend though. So that was kind of the why Seattle. I always knew I wanted to write a history of Seattle. The migrant worker and labor um, aspect of the, of the book didn't come until later on. And that was when I, you know, was in grad school and I was doing more research. And originally I thought I was going to write about Japanese American history I wasn't intending to write a labor history. And yet I kept coming back to um, workers, um, right? And I think when you want to write about, you know, Asian Americans in this time period, you, it has to, it's necessarily a project about labor. And I kept just coming across stories of, you know, uh, migrant workers and so many Japanese immigrants um, and other Asian immigrants were working as migrant laborers. That was, those were the jobs available to them at the time. And so I hadn't intended to write, <clears throat> excuse me, to write a story of migrant labor. And yet that's kind of how it evolved simply because, right, the people that I was focusing on, that's the work that they were doing. That was the kind of jobs that were available to them um, in the Pacific Northwest before World War II. And so it kind of just became a book um, about migrant workers. And from there, you know, I was able to talk about their segregation, the containment, um, of them, and also how they were displaced and how their um, sort of uh, spaces were erased um, over time, um, you know, beginning in the 30s and early 40s. Well, let's get into to the book a bit and into the stories about these people that you're talking about. And let's start with actually, you know, how you start in the introduction and you begin the book with an arrival. So tell us who were some of these migrant laborers who are coming to Seattle and are building Seattle and the towns and the suburbs around Seattle? Where are they coming from and what is bringing them to the Puget Sound? Well, actually, it's interesting, Steve, that you mention the way that I open the book. So the, it's, the story opens with um, Frank Kubo who is a Japanese American, actually, he was born in Auburn, Washington, and then was taken back to Japan by his parents right after he was born. And then he returns in 19, I think, 26 or 27. So the story of Frank is really interesting, because that's actually a story I stumbled on when I was working at the Densho Project. His Frank's daughter came to me with this box of Frank's, you know, photo albums, I think he had recently passed away. 
And I was working with her to kind of organize the, the collection uh, and to digitize it. And there was just incredible photographs, incredible um, ephemera in this box. And then I came across, I think it was even at the bottom of, the, of all of the materials, his typewritten memoir. Um, and I think he must have written it in the you know, 70s or 80s. And he detailed his life, his early life in the Pacific Northwest as a migrant worker. And, you know, I, so I, I opened the book with the story of Frank, and it struck me so much at the time because it, it was very different from the stories that I had been collecting at Densho, which were, you know, mostly of a sort of second generation Japanese Americans who had been like children during the war and, you know, told stories of kind of immigration, settlement, and then uh, Pearl Harbor being the, the moment of real disruption in their lives. And what Frank talked about was even before Pearl Harbor, right, in the 20s and through the 30s, a life of continual movement and a life of continual disruption. And it was so, it struck me because it was, again, so different from the stories I had heard before. Um, and he just, he, what became clear from his memoir was a city that was built, literally physically built to facilitate the movement of workers like Frank and to just, to keep them moving constantly throughout the region. Um, so that was really striking to me. And so then when I did more research in grad school, I kind of pursued this story a little bit. I, re I learned that Frank wasn't unique um, and that he was part of a much, much longer um, lineage of uh, workers who had come to Seattle, moved through Seattle and done the kind of labor that kept, you know, the, uh, that, that helped to build the city and also the expand the regional economy. And so Frank, you know, is a Japanese um, right, immigrant. I focus on many different groups of people in the book. It's kind of one of the things that was actually most challenging about writing it was, you know, this migratory workforce was so diverse, so heterogeneous. Um, and I tried to, you know, be attentive to the complexities of each group and try to understand the different relationships they had with each other and also to the work itself. So I talk about, you know, first, the sort of waves of um, Asian migration to the Pacific Northwest, which um, started with Chinese um, uh, migrants and then Japanese and then Filipino. And, you know, there are differences for sure with these three groups, but I think overall um, they were coming in part because their right kind of economies and their societies back in Asia had been disrupted through Western imperialism um, and Western kind of military um, aggression and in the case of the Philippines, American um, colonialism. And so, you know, they were kind of uh, disrupted in their home countries and then, you know, come to the Pacific Northwest um, through the system of labor contracting and um, are kind of pulled into this, you know, um, world of migratory labor. Um, so I tell that story. The other group that I talk about are um, Coast Salish um, peoples, Coast Salish workers who had, you know, and I wanted to be very careful to distinguish between, you know, Asian experiences at the time and indigenous experiences at the time, because migration had a very different history with Coast Salish peoples. Um, who are the indigenous peoples of uh, the Puget Sound region. You know, migration had been part of their um, history for a long time. Seattle had existed as a, um, a quote unquote crossing over place for, you know, hundreds of years uh, before that. And so they had this um, sort of pre existing history of, um, of migration. Um, and so I wanted to 
really make a distinction there between um, Asian migratory labor and indigenous migratory labor and how for indigenous peoples, you know, the kind of work that was open to them, which was, um, you know, in the fishing industries, the canneries, agriculture, um, allowed them to, I think, carve out a degree of autonomy um, within the growing constraints of colonial society and helps to explain, I think, the high participation of indigenous peoples in the migratory workforce in the Puget Sound region in particular. Um, so I wanted to be really um, kind of attentive to those differences. And the third group that I talk about in the book are um, uh, Europeans. Europeans have really not received a lot of attention in the scholarship on the Pacific Northwest. Um, and yet they were such an important part also of the migratory workforce. And yet a lot of them were coming um, from Scandinavia, from uh, Northern Europe, either directly from Europe itself, or they were kind of uh, secondary migrants. So they had um, resided in one place and were coming to the Northwest um, from, from um, other parts of the US, mostly kind of um, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota. And actually, they were coming for different, for for slightly different reasons in different contexts. A lot of the Scandinavians that I found actually were coming through these recruitment and colonization schemes that were developed by the railroad companies that wanted to recruit sort of white settlers to uh, populate the land surrounding the railroad tracks. And so that's why we see so many Scandinavians coming in this period. So they're, in some ways, it's a very different sort of uh, motivation. So they're coming because they're, they're wanting to be farmers. They're wanting to, you know, um, establish themselves as landowners. And yet many of them are too poor to buy land. And so they enter into the same kind of, you know, uh, labor as these other groups, as indigenous peoples and Asian migrants. Um, and so I, I kind of talk about the, the the meeting of these groups at different times, their relationships with each other, their tensions, when they come together, what prevents them from coming together. Um, and again, tr- while also trying to be attentive to the differences among these groups and, their, and the complexities of all these different kinds of people. That story that you told about uh, finding Frank's memoir at the bottom of a box, I mean, isn't that the dream of all historians to come across some sort of primary source that completely just reframes the way that you think about the history that, that you're doing? That, that's a great story. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you shared it. Thank you. Yeah. And it it's also speaks to me like, what if what if his daughter had just thrown out the, those, those yeah. materials, right? Like, right. what if she had thrown them away? What if, you know, she hadn't thought to bring them to Dencho? You know, it's just, mm-hmm, to me, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. also like the value of, you know, these things that people find in their parents or grandparents' basements, closets, how valuable those are. Yeah, absolutely. For us, yeah. Um, you, you said something interesting earlier that I want to kind of zoom into, that, that Seattle was a city that was in many ways built to facilitate this kind of uh, mobile labor. And I'm wondering if, in just kind of a broad sense, why migrant labor? Why does this particular workforce, this particular form of labor, why does it play such an important role in the city and the region's history broadly? Well, um, you know, Seattle's economy really was very inextricably linked with the broader regional economy of the Pacific Northwest. So there's no understanding of Seattle, in my opinion, this time period without 
understanding its linkages um, with the Pacific Northwest as a region. And the Pacific Northwest economy was structured around natural resource extraction and agriculture. This was the dominant economic system from, you know, the mid-19th century through, you know, you begin to see some decline during World War I, but certainly by World War II, it's kind of the end of it. Um, and so that kind of, of um, economy requires and indeed, I think, demands this kind of mobile workforce. First of all, agriculture, the canneries, fishing, that is seasonal work. That is work that, you know, you have the harvest in August and September. You only need labor for a certain, you know, a short amount of time, like one month, two months tops. So there's that. Um, and that was really the beginning, I think, of, you know, the system of migratory labor. And once you have this um that was the kind of beginning, right, of Seattle's role as this hub of migrant workers. Um, and then you have other industries like lumber, which isn't necessarily seasonal, but becomes in some ways uh, built around um, mobile and I would say disposable labor because of the system that's already been developed um, around agriculture in the Pacific Northwest and Seattle's role within that. Um, and so you just have this... Um, right, this sort of demand for a particular kind of work, you have a, a, a built environment and a kind of geography that's structured to facilitate that. And then it just kind of expands um, throughout the early 20th century. Um, and so I was really interested in how um, this demand for this particular kind of work shaped Seattle's urban landscape shaped like the physical environment, and also how um, it shaped kind of the racialized landscapes or racial segregation as well. But I think it really goes back to the particular kind of, um, you know, economy that was really dominant in the region at the time and the relationship between the broader region and the city itself. Like I think understanding, for me, understanding the connection between the city of Seattle and the broader Pacific Northwest was really crucial and then being able to tell the story of migrant workers in Seattle. Um, that was the kind of key for me. So that's kind of, I think, helps to explain a little bit why this particular kind of labor. Um, although, you know, I think you see dynamics like this in other Western cities for sure. You mentioned a moment ago the, 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 the racialized geography and landscape of Seattle itself. And one thing that I think you do particularly well in this book is put the reader into Seattle in different periods of time and really do a good job. You know, it's an urban history and you, and you really do a fantastic job of, of explaining the urban landscape. And I want to ask about one neighborhood in particular. Could you tell us what or maybe a better way to ask it is where was the sawdust and what does that name and that place tell us about all the stuff that you're talking about? Tell us about the early geography and the geography of labor in Seattle and, and sort of the, this Mill Street dividing line that you'd explain about in the book. Yeah, well, the sawdust was a um, area of Seattle that actually that was the term that the settlers used, the early settlers. So Henry Yesler, for example, who I talk about in the book, called this area the sawdust. And the sawdust was um, the area around Henry Yesler's sawmill, um, which was kind of the first business in Seattle. It was established in 1853. And um, it actually refers to the um, area around the mill that was located in a very kind of marshland, a marshy area of, of the city and had been 
filled and made solid through um, the dumping of all the sawdust into the onto the ground. Um, and so that's really, I locate that as the early origins of Seattle. And so where is the sawdust, I think is a good question. So the sawdust is, if I don't, I wish we had a, a map <laughs> um, that list, um, <laughs> listeners could use, but um, in my book, I have a map of, of, of this um, in the first couple pages. But Seattle is very, is a very kind of north-south city. The orientation is north-south and it's almost shaped like an hourglass. So um, the, the, the dividing line that I talk about right in the book and I trace throughout the book is Mill Street, which became Yesler Way. Um, and Mill Street was um, the original skid road, actually. Um, and it runs east-west, kind of at that, if you think about an hourglass, at that narrowest point in the hourglass. And that was the kind of dividing line. And so at the on the on the western west uh, or left hand side is Puget Sound, and on the eastern side is um, Lake Washington. So it's really surrounded by water. So Mill Street ran from the east down to the west, and um, Yesler Sawmill was located at the foot of Mill Street. So right where the tie, the the street met the water. Um, and that's a really important um, place. And I start the book, or my chapter one is called The Sawdust, um, because it emerges as Mill Street emerges as a dividing line that divides the city from the white settler north to the indigenous and Asian and, and multiracial south. Um, but the sawdust also, I, f- I felt like it was such a kind of evocative metaphor, I think, for what was happening in the city, because um, the people who were living there were literally referred to as sawdust people, right? So it's it's a way that like, um, we see that particular space and the name of it become applied to the people who are living there. Um, and also, it's a very interesting sort of, I think, I don't know, kind of uh, uh, name, because, and as I end the sort of my first chapter talking about how sawdust is, you know, it's kind of this waste product um, produced through industrial processes that was used to kind of fill in this um, area that became, you know, the sort of undesirable area of Seattle. It became where all the, you know, the saloons were and all the lodging houses. It was where all the people who were, you know, laborers who were, you know, interracial families, indigenous peoples, Asian migrants, they were all pushed right to this area called the sawdust. Um, So it really played an important role in the kind of formation of these racialized landscapes and um, segregation. And yet I I loved this. I I just I felt like it was such an evocative phrase because it also implies kind of this um, like something that's not solid. Right. Sawdust is is particles. It's not it's not actually solid. And so I thought that was a really great way to open the book to say, Yes, there is a creation of a kind of racialized landscape in this moment. The sawdust becomes this container for all of these quote unquote undesirable people, right, who are separated from, you know, the white settlers, from the high ground, from the more desirable, right, neighborhood, quote unquote. Um, And yet, is it really that solid, right? It's the kind of foundation of the city is around this racialized divide. And yet I felt like it's, it's actually not that solid. You know, it's not. And I felt like that was such a great sort of opening for the book because, as I talk about, you know, people in, in some ways, this system of migratory labor and the kind of um, built environment that emerges around it allowed for a kind of autonomy, I think, among the workforce that constantly threatened 
the the entire structure of right these kind of power structures that were in place so there was while these workers made the economy possible there was always the possibility right of kind of autonomy and that they were kind of doing things that right that people in positions of power could never quite figure out right they could never quite um, know what they were up to. And so I, I, I wanted to, so the sawdust, this is a long answer to your question, but the sawdust to me speaks to both the emergence of a particular kind of racialized landscape, as well as how that landscape actually wasn't really so solid and was constantly under threat of collapsing. And on top of all that, too, when, when I was reading that chapter and thinking about the sawdust as, as a phrase, as a name, I was thinking about work, right? Like sawdust is a byproduct of people doing sawing, of people doing work as well. So I think that for all the reasons you said, and on top of the fact, for all the reasons you said, it, 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 it's a fitting title for this chapter and, and a fitting way of thinking about this neighborhood, but also it represents the, the, the work itself that you're describing. So I, I wanted to ask that question for the same reason you just enunciated, because it is such a, a, an evocative phrase. Um. Let's talk about agriculture as well, because, I mean, as as we know, cities don't exist in a vacuum. They exist within particular contexts. And the area around Seattle, the Puget Sound, and kind of uh, the Northwest in general is an incredibly fertile region. And agriculture is also drawing mobile workers to the city and then out of the city, to points beyond the city itself throughout the, the Puget Sound region. Can you talk a bit about agriculture and specifically how hops play a role in the story that you are telling here? Yes. So um, my second chapter is a chapter about agriculture. It's a chapter specifically about um, the hops industry. This is like, I know we're not supposed to have favorite chapters, but <laughs> this is one of my favorite chapters because I worked so hard to tell this story. It took me so long to uncover, um, you know, and to figure out how this system was working. And it was actually the first chapter that I wrote in my dissertation. And it's actually the, the, the one that took the longest. And I feel like I didn't quite finish it until the book. I turned in my the final manuscript of the book. So it, um, it was definitely a, the most challenging chapter to write, but also the most rewarding for me because I feel like like I finally kind of figured out figured out the different pieces. So agriculture was very important to the Puget Sound, and I think it's not really acknowledged, right? Um, you know, I think there's been studies on the hops industry, but not how it connects to Seattle history. It's always been very separate, right? Um, so I, I, and yet I knew that it was connected to Seattle history because of. Um, because I had read so many stories of hop pickers, indigenous and Chinese, kind of being recruited, right, from the city, um, Seattle at that time, and I make the argument that um, hops really transformed Seattle into a hub of labor migration, specifically in labor recruitment and employment. Um, so I knew that. Um, and yet I the, the most difficult thing for me about this chapter was telling the story of Chinese workers. And this is where I hit, I think, into the ways in which, you know, we, we as historians tend to, to slot certain groups of people into certain occupations at certain historical moments. So I had such a hard time finding archival materials on Chinese agricultural workers in the Puget Sound region in this period. There was just so little. And I it was a frustrating process because I was going to 
historical societies, libraries, and people kind of just telling me that, like, to look at the railroads or to look at the canneries. And I was like, well, I know that there's Chinese agricultural workers because, well, um, one of the um, infamous episodes I cover in the book happened in the hop fields when there was this moment of racial violence against Chinese hop pickers. And so I knew that they were working in the hops industry. Um, And so, yeah, so I pieced together this story and it was, um, um, you know, it was an opportunity, I think, for me to um, assert the significance of indigenous and Chinese uh, workers to the creation of Seattle as a hub of mig- of labor migration. So the story in Seattle is that um, the gold rush, right, the Klondike gold rush in Alaska and the Yukon was what actually transformed Seattle into a hub of migration of miners who were going um, up to Alaska and back and traveling back and forth. Um, but actually, as I found, indigenous and Chinese agricultural workers were the ones who were making these journeys, you know, for the purposes of labor, like way before, right, decades before the discovery of gold um, in Alaska and the Yukon. And so I wanted to kind of center that. And yet I, I, it took me a while to figure out how that entire system worked. And what I, what I learned is that this was a very much a maritime industry. So in Puget Sound in the you know, 1860s, 1870s, there wasn't a lot of railroad transportation. There wasn't a lot of land-based transportation. If you've ever been to Seattle, even today, you know that it's a very much a maritime city. Um, and so, and that was particularly true in the 1860s and 70s. Um, every, everything revolved around water. So I was able to map um, where the hop farms were. And I realized that all the major hop growers had their farms oriented around these rivers that all convert had convergences in Seattle. So then I kind of put it together. Um, and I really wanted to, I think, tell the story of agriculture and how it was very much related to urbanization first, because those two, right, agriculture, often we don't even think of it as having an urban connection or urban roots. And second, because it allowed me to, I think, spotlight the importance of indigenous and Chinese workers and really sort of establishing Seattle as this um, hub of labor migration. And then to also make the argument, right, that um, Chinese and indigenous uh, workers were really tightly, you know, kind of pushed into the same areas of the city. And that's where the employers were going to draw from, right, to recruit workers. And so then I bring the story of racial segregation, right, the sawdust, where all these workers were being segregated to kind of expand on it a little bit and to talk about the role of that urban racial segregation in kind of, you know, allowing the regional economy to kind of expand. And so employers were going to, you know, Seattle to recruit their workers and the interconnection between Chinese and indigenous workers was so crucial because they could kind of pick and choose, right, who they wanted to. Um, So, you know, they would recruit indigenous workers. Sometimes they would recruit Chinese workers. So it gave them a kind of, I had flexibility in terms of who they could recruit. And yet, as I talk about in the book, it also created a lot of problems for employers and for these hop growers because it allowed, again, going back to the theme of autonomy, it allowed for a degree of autonomy um, among the workforce. And it gave these workers an upper hand, I think, when agriculture was so much um, oriented around the water and around maritime um, geographies. Yeah, so it was a really interesting um, story and then the the story of agriculture actually I, I follow it um, I have a later chapter um, on agriculture 
um, kind of during the Great Depression. And by that time, you know, agriculture really, there wasn't a lot of agriculture in the Puget Sound region after like the late 19th century. A lot of it moves over to Eastern Washington, like Yakima becomes a huge producer of hops. Um, so Japanese farmers were actually the ones who were still invo involved in agriculture. So I kind of follow that story um, and the transformation of, uh, of agriculture in Puget Sound um, over time. But yeah, I think it played a very important role, not only in Puget Sound and the kind of Pacific Northwest economy, but also in Seattle, kind of the urban history of the city as well. And you can't tell uh, a story about work and about labor in the early 20th century without also talking about organizing. And, you know, in the early 20th century, um, labor organizing, often radical labor organizing led by groups like the IWW, they would find a home in the Pacific Northwest and in Seattle in particular. So how did the the workers that you that you describe, the, 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 the workers that, whose story you're telling here, um, how are they engaging with labor organizing and groups like the IWW? How and why were trades like the timber industry, for instance, how are they specifically a very fertile ground for unionization and for organizing? Yeah, so the IWW, um, or the Industrial Workers of the World, I think had a lot of success in the Pacific Northwest because of the system of migratory labor and because of the way that the labor um, was structured in the region was very mobile it was people were constantly moving um, around. And there was a lot of, I mean, poor conditions, obviously, but I think it was this kind of mobility that we see in the workforce that was kind of perfect for the IWW's organizing strategy. And so we see, well, first of all, lumber in the Pacific Northwest, by the time the IWW came to the region in the early 20th century, was the biggest employer in the state. I think the region in general, it was, I think it employed 75% of all the workers um, in Washington state. So it makes sense that the IWW, if they're going to come to the Northwest, they would focus on organizing uh, lumber workers. Um, but I, I do think there's a way in which the, the mobility and kind of high turnover of the workforce fit really well with the IWW's organizing model and allowed them to almost slip in and out of these lumber camps and move along with the movement of the workers without really getting sort of spotted by employers or foremen. So it kind of gave them, I think, a lot of autonomy in how they were able to talk to people, organize people. Um, and that was really interesting to, to learn because, you know, the entire structure of the lumber industry was the lumber industry really, um, really cultivated a disposable workforce. That's kind of how the entire system itself was able to expand in the Northwest so rapidly. Um, it was very, it was a very, it was very precarious work. Um, and lumber companies relied so much on employment agents. And, you know, it was a very kind of exploitative uh, system. Um, and so I think what an interesting thing I learned was that, um, you know, the lumber industry relied on this kind of high turnover and disposability of labor in order to guard against strikes, because their logic was if people are con there's constant turnover, people are never going to be in one place long enough to organize, right, and develop relationships and be invested. And so it'll it'll guard against strikes and it'll guard against kind of labor agitation in the workforce. And yet the IWW kind of turned that on its head because of the way that it was able to mobilize workers and organize um, workers. And so um, 
the IWW, you know, this is one of the aspects of the book that I didn't get a chance to get as much into. But the IWW and its relationship with Japanese workers um, is still, to me, an area that needs more more scholarship. It needs more study in the Pacific Northwest. There's been studies on, you know, IWW and Asian workers in like California and other places, but the Northwest, there seemed to be a kind of um, they weren't as successful in organizing Japanese workers as um, they were in other regions. And I think, well, I have kind of some. I, I speculate in the book as to why I think that was. Um, there was a lot of kind of racial tension um, in the workforce um, and the IWW organized, you know, in areas that had traditionally been very hostile to Asian labor. So Everett, Washington was one of those areas. There had been anti-Japanese, anti-Indian violence um, in Everett and areas around that. Um, and also I, they were really focusing on organizing loggers and logging was actually considered to be, um, white and European labor, quote unquote, skilled labor that was, um, right. That, that, uh, excluded Japanese workers. And so, um, you know, I think I wanted to bring up the IWW actually, because it, again, it was such an important force in, organizing the kind of workforce that I was focusing on. Um, and I think that they did the most of any kind of labor union in organizing the very difficult job of, you know, this high turnover, highly disposable kind of workforce. Um, and yet there were also limitations to what they were able to do, I think, on the ground. Um, and so I wanted to kind of highlight their work while also highlighting the limitations um, of what they were doing. And, you know, that was difficult for me, actually, was to kind of tease out where especially indigenous and Asian workers fit within the landscape of organized labor in this time period. Um, And I think, you know, organized labor as an institution was very hostile, especially to Asian labor in the early 20th century. Um, And so that was something that I kind of tried to talk about as well, you know, like all the kind of barriers that were in place to organizing different kinds of workers. But I wanted to make the point too, that like, you know, I I tried to, I mentioned in the chapter on hops that indigenous workers are actually striking and they're engaging in collective bargaining outside of the kind of traditional union sort of structure, right? They're initiating this on their own and they're initiating this for their own purposes. But I wanted to highlight that because I think, you know, that's a really important part of, you know, the Pacific Northwest labor history and labor heritage is native workers who we see engaging in strikes and collective bargaining as early as the 1870s, you know, before like the IWW or the other unions came on the scene. And yet, why don't we recognize that as part of our labor history? Why don't we, why don't we, you know, see that as this crucial, you know, kind of as these crucial actors. And so I also kind of wanted to push back against seeing, you know, kind of workers resistance only in terms of the kind of union structure, not to say that that wasn't important, because it certainly was. And yet there were so many other movements, um, and ways of thinking about workers resistance and autonomy that are outside of that as well. Let's bring this story back to Seattle. And there's another really important neighborhood that you discuss in the book, and that's the Tenderloin section of of the city. So where was this neighborhood? Who lived there? And what did it represent for all kinds of different groups of people in Seattle itself, in the city itself? 
Yeah, so the tenderloin is sort of an extension of the sawdust. Um, it's So the sawdust was really kind of in Seattle's early days in the 1850s and 60s. Um, and as the as the city grew and expanded, you see the area um, kind of running from the waterfront to east of that develop into what becomes the tenderloin. So the tenderloin in some ways is an extension of the sawdust. Um, and I should say the sawdust today, if for people who are familiar with Seattle, is like Pioneer Square. And the tenderloin is where you get more into what today would be like um, – you know, uh, Washington Street, King Street, like kind of the the western part of the International District. Um, so it's part of the sawdust. It's kind of part of that south of Seattle, like south of Yesler segregated space. And yet the Tenderloin also has a very specific history because it was called the Tenderloin after San Francisco's Tenderloin. And it was called that because um, of the existence of commercial sex work. And it really became um, this kind of controversial area during the early 20th century, kind of 19-teens, 1920s, when there was all these debates about um, prostitution, commercial sex work, like should we allow it? in the city, should we ban it, right? There was all of these discussions about it. Um, and what we see, so it was, so the Tenderloin name comes about when um, prostitution was actually legal and it was kind of like a red light district. Um, but the name kind of stuck. And the Tenderloin, again, became this, served as like a segregated space for all of the people who were considered to be undesirable. Um, and it wasn't just a space of commercial sex work. It was also where the workers continued to live, interracial families continued to live, um, where all of the kind of um, indigenous and Asian and other like white migrant men were pushed into. Um, the Tenderloin has a specific history, though, also with Japanese um, Americans, because they were running a lot of the small businesses um, that were um, present in the Tenderloin, in particular uh, brothels, gambling halls, right? All of these kinds of quote-unquote unsavory, you know, business activities. And so this spurred a huge kind of reform within the Japanese immigrant community, in some ways directed by Japan itself, which had kept close tabs on its overseas communities, um, to begin to kind of like clean up the tenderloin and to get Japanese immigrants out of this business um, into more respectable occupations. So the tenderloin also has a particular kind of resonance with Japanese um, American history in Seattle, even though I think like still to this day, you know, I think the Japanese American elders would not actually admit this, um, that how how involved um, and invested these early Japanese immigrants were in this kind of tenderloins underground economy, and yet they were. And that's how, you know, the, the, the origins of Seattle's Japanese immigrant community were there. Um, and I think that's also important to note. Um, and so it has this history, um, and I kind of critique the sort of historical memory of the tenderloin in Seattle, which is seen as the site of, you know, it sparks this kind of reform movement by many you know, middle class and elite white women who actually uh, recall the mayor, they oust the mayor, they get another mayor elected who's more favorable to what they want. And yet I felt I feel like that kind of erases, you know, the presence of a more diverse cast of characters who are also involved and invested in um, kind of reforming the tenderloin for their own purposes. And one of those groups is certainly Japanese immigrant leaders who, you know, 
begin working with city authorities to kind of clean up the tenderloin and get their people kind of like um, involved in more respectable occupations. And that's kind of the chapter that I have on the hotel business and the origins of that. And that's when we begin to see, um, you know, Japanese immigrants starting to kind of move away from the tenderloin and try to kind of distance themselves from that more unsavory past. And then you end the, the the history that you tell here right on the eve of World War II with Seattle um, just starting to begin this really massive, really extreme urban transformation. So can you explain a bit about the roots of this transformation? What is changing in the city? And in particular, about the central role of the Boeing Corporation that it is playing in shifting the city toward a new kind of economic system and a new form of labor as well. Yeah, so World War Two, and this is true for, you know, West Coast cities, I think, in general, certainly LA, where I live, this is true. World War Two was really a turning point uh, for a lot of cities and Seattle included, even though I think the roots of it, you could trace back to World War One. Um, so World War Two is a moment in which Seattle transforms economically to a city that's, that's um, economically uh, revolving around manufacturing, right? And Boeing plays a huge role in this. So Boeing, the people who founded Boeing started off actually in the lumber industry um, and then um, transformed into airplane building later on by even before the U.S. enters World War II, right? Um, Boeing had, beca- had surpassed lumber, I think, as the largest employer in the region. And because there was so much demand for airplanes um, and aerospace technology and um, because of the war in Europe, it had only accelerated during World War II um, as the U.S. right entered the war. Um, and so there's this massive transformation that happens. Again, I think you could argue that it was sort of, you know, years in the making at this point. Um, but it's the moment in which, you know, manufacturing really and sort of highly um, edu- like educated stationary workers overtook and I think really eclipsed and then sort of, um, you know, even uh well, we see the complete decline in that moment of this older system of resource extraction and migratory labor. So during World War II, you have a shift away from, um, you know, the extraction of natural resources, away from agriculture, away from the canneries, and away from the system of, you know, migratory labor and towards um, towards manufacturing. And that affects the city because that, um, uh, you know, manufacturing requires a different kind of workforce, people who are stable, who are stationary, who aren't moving around um, as much, who aren't mobile. And so that has um, an impact on the kind of built environment of the city as well. And that's part of the argument that I end with is that, you know, in the 30s and early 40s, that's actually when you begin to see slum clearance projects, you know, enacted by the city targeting these kinds of sites that had once housed and been so crucial to, um, you know, facilitating the movement of these migratory workers, they've become targeted with slum clearance and demolition. So, you know, one example is Hooverville, which I don't talk about as much, but um, there's a lot, if people are interested, there's a really great materials, and you know, Seattle Municipal Archives and the University of Washington Digital um, Libraries has great material on Hooverville, but Hooverville was a shanty town that had sprouted up during the Great Depression. Um, and, you know, the city burned it down, actually, um, burned it down in, I believe, 1941. And then the story that I focus on, um, and I end the book with, is the clearance of um, Profanity Hill, which is today kind of um, in Seattle, like First Hill, 
area um, where a lot of the hospitals are right now. And there's, of course, a, a public housing project that was built um, on top of this kind of cleared slum um, called Yesler Terrace. And so I think, you know, scholars have really noted the economic kind of transformation that took place during World War II from, you know, um, from resource extraction, agriculture to manufacturing. And yet I wanted to make a, an argument that this economic shift also had, we see a corresponding shift in the urban landscape and built environment of the city. Um, so I see that as an important moment. What I wanted to emphasize though too, in tracing this shift is two things. Like one is how this affected Japanese uh, people in Seattle, right? I wanted to kind of de-exceptionalize in some ways the World War II incarceration and to explore and expose the economic um, kind of roots of incarceration in this particular place because I think that that's not talked about as much. And what I the point that I try to make in the book is that, you know, Japanese immigrants managed to carve out a space, a pretty powerful space for themselves in this economy by running a lot of the small businesses that serve the migratory workforce. I mean, they were, you know, really big players in what I call the racialized economy south of Yesler Way in the segregated um, space in the south end of the city. And yet by the 30s and certainly by 1941, you know, this shift to manufacturing also had the um, kind of impact of you know, the Japanese were not useful anymore, right? They weren't useful economically to the city. And so they kind of become disposable in this moment. Um, and so I wanted to kind of bring the economic argument about, um, you know, the Japanese connection with this called older economic system and the wartime incarceration to kind of really bring that forth. And the second thing that I think is important about World War II is that yes, the city changes a lot, right? And it transforms in terms of the economy, the built environment really transforms, and yet some things really persist and remain the same. And that's when I, you know, I gesture towards African-American migration to Seattle, which really intensifies during World War II and into the post-war years. That's when you have the most um, black migration happening is during World War II and after. And yet, right, like what, what doesn't change? Well, what doesn't change are these same racialized landscapes that had kind of formed to contain the migrant workers and the, you know, multiracial sort of workforce of the city also become um, sort of spaces of segregation of African-American migrants who are coming to work in, you know, the wartime industries and yet are so, sort of subjected to these similar forms of exclusion and restriction that we saw with the previous generation of workers. So on one hand, yes, things change, but on the other, you know, for particular black workers, they don't change that much. And as, as we begin to, to wrap up here a bit, I want to bring this up to the present. Um, and as I see it, memory and 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 myth is is sort of woven throughout this book. It's it's a thread that that I see throughout a lot of what we've been talking about here. I mean, the word erasure is right there on the cover of the book. And at the outset, we talked about how Seattle has this reputation as a very progressive city that, in a lot of ways, does not really match up with the city's history. So. I guess my question is, why do you think this city has been, in some quarters certainly, forgotten? Or why has the city attempted to erase or tried to hide in certain ways uh, this particular part of the city's history, the story that the city of Seattle, that a lot of Seattleites tell about themselves here in the early 21st century? Well, one of the things that I wanted to make clear in the book 
was the relationship between the physical, the erasure, the physical erasure and demolition of these spaces and the, their, their erasure in the historical memory. And so I do think there is a connection here between the, um, right, the kind of physical destruction and demolition um, of these migrant spaces and from this earlier kind of generation of workers and right their erasure in the historical memory. So I do think there really is a connection there that I tried to make between the physical spaces, their erasure, their demolition, and then how that enables a form of forgetting in the city. Um, and I should say that, you know, the story kind of continues after World War II because a lot of the, this is during the era of uh, urban renewal, because a lot of the hotels that had kind of withstood this period of demolition in the late 30s and early 40s actually become um, demolished again, um, you know, through uh, freeway construction and these other kind of programs of urban renewal. So I do think that there's a way in which, you know, Seattle's, um, the transformation, the deliberate at the time, deliberate transformation of the um, urban landscape and the demolition of these spaces kind of plays into the forgetting, right, of the people who um, who inhabited them and the reasons why they, you know, were here in the first place, were here in, I mean, Seattle, why they were in Seattle in the first place. So um, I do think there's a connection there. I also think, you know, for Seattle, one of the things that, um, I, you know, I wanted to do with this book is to really put forward Seattle as a very vital um, city for urban historians. You know, it's really been Seattle. There's not a lot of literature on Seattle. I think it's changing for sure. Um, and there's been, you know, some great work on, you know, environmental history and Native American history. But in terms of how Seattle is written about in the kind of urban history like canon, it's really absent. And part of that also, I think, is because of the highly mobile nature of the urban population. It's very difficult, um, you know, to trace and to tell the histories of people who were moving around all the time and who didn't really leave records. And so I think there's a part of that, too. There's a way in which, you know, this group of people that were so important um, in building the city, and around which the city actually physically developed, right? And around which these kinds of um, regimes of segregation emerged, you know, ha have been virtually ignored in the scholarship too. So I think there's, a, we're also missing a kind of critical historiography on Seattle history that would also help to kind of shed light on, you know, this past, this exclusionary past. Um, and that is kind of not really there too. So I wanted the book to really, um, you know, to, to highlight, I think, what we can learn from Seattle by using Seattle as a case study, uh, you know, in, uh, for this like time period um, in U.S. history and urban history, you know, what can we learn about, right? What can we learn about cities more broadly, not just kind of Seattle itself? But yeah, I think that that's a really important question. Um, and one that I, I hoped that, you know, when, when people would finish the book, they would have a, uh, more appreciation, not only for Seattle history, but like thinking about the history of cities in general. Well, that kind of brings me to, to my next question. And as a way of um, summarizing and thinking about the kind of big picture of the book, I always like to ask my guests to kind of put themselves in the shoes of someone who has read this book and are thinking back on it, you know, a year or five years down the line. What do you hope that that reader would remember? What's the kind of big takeaway that you hope a reader might come away from your book understanding? 
Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> there are so many things that I, I feel like I want people to know. I think, you know, well, especially for this audience, right, who are probably mostly historians and academics, I, I think continuing to be critical of the archive itself and to continue to be sort of to find to to understand, right, the sort of power imbalances that structure the archive and to kind of always look and be creative about how we're finding what kinds of stories we're looking for and where we're looking for them, to be creative about what we're what we're thinking about even as an archive, um, to me is um, a, a, something that I want in particular historians to take away. And I think if we're thinking about kind of the general public, you know, really, and this is going to sound kind of corny, but <laughs> I want, to me, this is all about how critical history which is difficult, you know, sometimes it's difficult to kind of talk about these things. It's hard, right? It's not an easy thing. Um, how necessary it is to understanding not only our current present, right? The kind of moment we're living in now, but also to help us to like find a way towards a new kind of future or something, you know? And this is something that I've been thinking a lot about with the, writing the book and also in the way I teach history, you know, to my students at UCR, you know, history, I think, is very empowering, and it can be very empowering. And I think I was unfortunately exposed to history that was not at all, and that was kind of exclus exclusionary and gatekeeping. And yet I think there's a way in which history um, can be so powerful and so important for kind of thinking about how we go from, like, where do we go from here, right? How did we get here in the first place, and where do we go? And I think my book, you know, tries in a, in, you know, a small way to contribute to that conversation and to get people thinking about, you know, maybe their, their surroundings, their neighborhoods, the history of where they live in different ways, and maybe things that they, you know, hadn't thought about before, and yet can help equip them to kind of, you know, continue to, right, intervene into the present and kind of imagine, I think, a different way forward. I think that's beautifully said, and I, I think that uh, that that the book speaks to both of those audiences and really emphasizes those points really well to both um, uh, you know professional readers and to the general public as well. Um, and at the end of my interviews, I always like to get a preview from my guests about the, what they've been working on in the interim. And sometimes it feels kind of silly because this book has been out for you know I don't know maybe like six months now or something like that. But nonetheless, if I know historians, then you probably have some other project that you've been working on in the interim. So I'm curious, uh, what have you been working on, Megan? Well, um, of course, you know historians so well. <laughs> of course, I have a million. <laughs> I have a million projects. I have so don't, many. Don't don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> Um, but one of them that I'm really excited about is kind of actually continuing in some way from the story of Seattle from the margins, but kind of um, moving it forward a little bit in time. And I've, I've come across so many stories of Japanese American farmers who returned after the war and resumed farming and whose farms were who and who lost their farms actually not during the incarceration the world war ii incarceration but who lost them later on during the period of of suburban suburbanization and suburban expansion and i've found this in so many in la in san francisco in seattle so many cases that i started to think that there was a pattern 
um, of, you know, Japanese farmers being targeted by city county agencies, by corporations, um, you know, in order to kind of make way for, you know, the big box stores and the freeway on and off ramps and all those kind of suburban landscapes that we, you know, that surround us today, certainly in California. Um, and I wanted to kind of tell the story of these farmers and, you know, extending, I think, um, the kind of precarity and the financial losses and the political marginalization that Japanese Americans experienced during the war to after the war and to argue that that actually persisted. And also to kind of intervene into this idea of, you know, Japanese Americans in the 50s and 60s were becoming like model minorities and they were moving into the suburbs and they were accessing these kind of white spaces. I wanted to actually keep um, our attention on those who continued to experience precarity and marginalization after the war. And we see this um, through the loss of these farms. And um, this, I, you know, it's it, Bellevue, Washington is one of my case studies where I see, you know, clusters of Japanese American farmers being targeted by, you know, Safeway to build a, a warehouse right in Bellevue in the 1950s. And in, you know, LA where I live now, um, you know, Cal State Northridge was built in part on land that was taken under very um, sketchy terms um, from a Japanese American family, a, a farming family. And so I wanted to, that's kind of um, one of the projects that I'm really excited about because I think it also extends my interest in Seattle to a kind of broader geography and connects kind of the story of California as well. That sounds fantastic. More historians listening, more histories of suburbs, please. That sounds like a really good and and an important project. I can't wait to read that. So get writing is, is my <laughs> message to you. <laughs> Dr. Megan Asaka is an assistant professor of history at the University of California at Riverside. And her new book is Seattle from the Margins, Exclusion, Erasure, and the Making of a Pacific Coast City, which came out just recently in 2022 with the University of Washington Press. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Megan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks a lot.